Support for this podcast comes from Qualcomm Incorporated. Staying connected is more important than ever before. With that in mind, the Qualcomm Small Business Accelerator Program is providing $25,000 worth of equipment, software, and services to select small businesses making the transition to remote, mobile-first work environments during COVID-19 and beyond. To learn more about the Qualcomm Small Business Accelerator Program, visit qualcomm.com COVID. I'm Alex Iono, and I have a new podcast. Let's Get Into It is all about tackling the stuff you and I want to know. Each week, I'm joined by a friend and a wisdom tree, and we discuss everything you want to know about money, love, your relationships, even fitness and mental health. I love having deep conversations with my friends, and now it's your turn to get in on it. Listen to Alex Iono, Let's Get Into It, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. One thing we're learning in this pandemic is that some workers are more essential to our nation's functioning than others. And, you know, we're not talking about bankers and politicians and celebrities. We're we're talking about grocery store workers and nurses and teachers and cafeteria workers and sanitation workers. We're thinking of them in, in ways that we've never thought of before because we're realizing that if these people don't show up in person for their jobs, Americans can't stay healthy. They're not going to be fed. So in this episode, we're going to take a look at, at a group of workers that we Americans require to keep our country going, that, that are not only overlooked, underpaid, and undervalued, but we've been actively attacking them for years. This is Tom Colicchio, and this is Citizen Chef. We have immigrant workers uh, who are growing and picking and processing the vast majority of our food. But according to the Department of Agriculture, half of them, over a million men and women, are undocumented. Labor contractors and growers estimate that number to be much higher, around 75%. And so right now in the summer of 2020, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and it's growing season here in the United States. And we've experienced several years of a government that is systematically trying to do its very best to prevent these so-called illegal workers from making a living in this country. These are people who pick and process our food, and they are absolutely essential. We don't eat if they don't show up to work. By this logic, they should have so much power, but instead, immigrant workers are some of the most vulnerable people in this country. In this episode, we'll take a look at the paradox of the immigrant essential worker in America. They work for low pay, they are subject to the whims of a political party in power, can't benefit from our unemployment system, our social security system, that they pay into, if they're working on the books, and most of them are. And much of the time, they live in fear of being rounded up and detained, deported and separated from their families for the crime of showing up to work and doing a job that all Americans need them to do. I'm really pleased that you all are are shining a light on on this subject. So today I am talking to Dr. Angela Stisi. I am Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And we're going to look into the conditions in which some of these workers do their jobs. This is uh, something that really kind of has been bugging me since I, I read of the raids in Mississippi. But I guess to tee it off, I guess right now America consumes about 9 billion chickens a year. So it's about 24 million chickens per day. So let's just start there. Were we always this chicken crazy in in this country? We are a bit chicken crazed in this country. You're right. So Americans eat almost, I think we're at about 93 pounds of chicken per year per capita, so per person, which is Mm -hmm. virtually an all-time high, up 
considerably from when I was a kid or when our grandparents were were consuming chicken. Um, And experts sort of point to two trends that have led to to our appetite for chicken that really were, were ramping up in the 1980s. And one is our increased interest in our health and our recognition that cholesterol contributes to to poor mm-hmm. heart health. The poultry industry did a really good job in the 80s and 90s of, of sort of um, capitalizing on that concern and marketing, right, as as white meat that was that was better for our heart health. And simultaneously, there was a big rise during those decades of our consumption of fast food, and that ex- extended um, or sort of built on on the more traditional meal, fast food meal of hamburger into chicken nuggets and chicken sandwiches. And together, these two mm-hmm. sort of trends in, in the U.S. diet led to a dramatic increase in the amount of chicken we eat. Right. And the majority of the, the, the chicken, again, this it, the, the new story of the raids in Mississippi is what really sort of prompted me to look at this. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm a chef. Um, I, I, <laughs> I I sell a lot of chicken. Uh, we, we eat a good amount of chicken at home as well. But when I read about the raids in, in, in Mississippi, I started thinking of, is this going to happen um, in not only Mississippi, is this going to happen in Georgia, Alabama, Pennsylvania? And if this if this happens, and we're we're losing um, a you know a large part of the workforce who's doing this, what is this going to do to the cost of chicken? Is it going to is it going to increase? And so, I, I guess let's talk about chicken processing down south. Why the industry um, moved down south? How it started down south? And starting, I guess, in World War II, who was working in these plants, and and how did that labor force change over 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 the years? The poultry industry really grew up in the south. Uh, so unlike meat processing, which was you know an urban manufacturing job, poultry really grew up, like you say, um, around World War II in the south because land was cheap. Much of it was not terribly fertile. And there was, a, importantly, a large supply of, of poor folks who needed jobs and who saw work in chicken plants as a step up from other types of jobs that they could have, principally farm work, right? Outdoor labor right. on farms. Mm-hmm. In, in and around World War II, the industry relied heavily on poor white women, many of whom were, you know, were alone with their, with their partners away at war. Mm-hmm. And and it really you know began as you're probably aware Tom sort of as a initially a backyard in, industry that that supplemented people's dinner plates and maybe a li- brought in a little extra income with the eggs that you could sell or the chickens that you could sell. But starting around the 1930s and 40s, it, it became an industrial food source, and and women worked largely on those lines on the processing lines in the early years. So let's let's focus on the raids. This is what really sort of piqued mm-hmm. my interest. Uh, again, um, like most people, I, I woke up to the news back in August of of these raids, and and obviously because I am I'm a chef and and always look at things through a food lens. Uh, two things came to mind right away. Number one, um, is this something that is you know is going to extend outside of Mississippi? And how, how does something like this happen? Well, it was a coordinated effort, so it was actually across uh, seven different plants simultaneously in six different towns. It was an enforcement action that took months, if not years, to organize, uh, and the government flew in hundreds of, of agents in order to carry it out. 
I was taken by surprise by the raids, as I think many were, because our entire industrial food system relies on undocumented labor. And there are undocumented workers sure. in our communities across our entire country, from Maine to Florida to Washington State and Arizona, right? And everywhere in between. So I'm not sure what stood out about Mississippi because I don't think it's unique, you know, a town or series of towns or region that have been transformed by Latin American immigration due to the demands of industrial food production. The investigation that led to these raids started about 18 months before August 7th, 2019. This was the largest single state immigration enforcement operation in our country's history. My name is Elisa Zul, and I'm an investigative reporter with the Clarion Ledger. It's the newspaper in Jackson, Mississippi. Hey. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for agreeing to do this. Yes, let's just jump right in. Okay. It was actually really interesting to look at the search warrants that were unsealed after the raids. Uh, they included details basically making the case for why federal officials believed that undocumented workers uh, were employed at these chicken processing plants. What we found in these search warrants is that federal investigators used ankle monitors and informants to build a case for raiding these chicken plants. Uh, some workers had been caught, uh, maybe at the border or during a traffic stop in other parts of the country, years ago. Uh, at that time, authorities knew they didn't have permission to be in the country and put them on uh, electronic monitoring uh, mm -hmm. while their immigration cases made their way through court. Sure, sure. So GPS coordinates actually showed that for hours every day, several days a week, these known undocumented immigrants were reporting to chicken processing plants. And sometimes whenever undocumented immigrants were picked up uh, by ICE agents, they directly told them, uh, we have jobs. We work for a chicken processing plant in Mississippi. Uh, sometimes they even gave them their work IDs. Hmm. What was the coordination like to actually execute the, the arrests? Um, this was a massive operation. Like you mentioned earlier, hundreds of federal officials, either Homeland Security or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, came into Mississippi. A total of 680 people were arrested that day. Um, they were all uh, suspected, suspected of coming into the country illegally and working without permission. Um, a lot of people were bussed away and taken uh, in for processing. About 300 people were released on the spot or within 27 hours of the raids. Uh, the remaining uh, few hundred people uh, were sent into ICE detention. Um, and that day, uh, August 7th, happened to be the first or second day of school for a lot of kids in the area. Um, and um, I think maybe that's part of the reason why this drew so much national attention. And a lot of people, it was just a normal day at work for them at first. What alerted to the, them to the fact that something strange was happening is that they heard helicopters. Mm -hmm. And one woman told me that she showed up for work, federal agents walked in, they pointed their guns at her and ordered all the workers to put their hands on the walls. Uh, they were searched and, and they were taken away. 
that day, news of the raids spread really quickly because you got to remember these are really small towns. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows everyone else. And what ended up happening is a lot of people showed up outside the plant's gates as the raid was going on. Some of them brought children, hoping to convince these agents to let their loved ones go. Children were crying. Some people were chanting, let them go, as people were herded onto these buses and taken away. And it's hard to overstate the humanitarian impact that these raids have had. Last time I checked, there were about 120 people who were charged criminally. These offenses were mostly related to fraudulent use of social security cards. Uh-huh. So in November, an ICE representative testified at a congressional hearing. He said that investigators have found that not one of the hundreds of people arrested were engaged in any major criminal activity besides immigration mm-hmm. and identity fraud violations. And, you know, uh, even if you didn't have criminal charges against you, a lot of people are fighting deportation. And immigration courts move really slowly. Mm-hmm. So for some folks, their court dates aren't until later this year. And this has created a humanitarian crisis. Because even if you weren't arrested, if you were an undocumented worker, most likely you were fired after these raids. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, a lot of families are in tough positions. They're kind of stuck in this holding pattern. They want to work, but they can't. They still have to feed their kids and pay their rent and utilities, um, but they can't move away to find job opportunities because they have court dates coming up. So, you know, there are always people looking for jobs in these smaller communities, but the employment pool isn't huge. Um, And you have to think about, too, the conditions inside a chicken processing plant aren't ideal. It can be a really messy, dirty, hard job to do. And anecdotally, um, just talking to some people who have worked in these chicken plants, turnover is pretty high. It's definitely not a job for everyone. I've stayed in touch with a source who works at a chicken plant in Morton, Mississippi, and she says she's just been incredibly busy since August because they still haven't been able to replace all the workers who were fired. Got it. So she's working double shifts and and, and overtime, I guess. Yeah, longer hours, double shifts. One of the things that is that probably draws employers to undocumented workers is precisely their undocumented status. Dr. Angela Stisi. Certainly their undocumented status makes them exploitable and often um, less likely to stand up for better pay or against dangerous working conditions or less likely to Mm -hmm. organize a union, less likely to report uh, or to demand um, workers' compensation when when they're injured. But in Mississippi, actually, Latin American workers have been organizing since the early 2000s. When I was there, there was a, a massive firing of immigrant workers um, precisely at the time that they that their organizing was really gaining traction. I don't I don't know that mm-hmm. organizing was on the upswing in this particular moment, um, but people have pointed to the fact that you know that that at least in the case of Cook Foods, that workers you know, had brought this class action lawsuit against the company. It's hard to say whether that's, you know, whether that figures into into the raids. 
Right. So let's let's focus on the conditions. You know, we hear about inter- in injuries in plants. In your book, uh, Scratching Out a Living, you talk about how workers would show up wearing diapers. Mm-hmm. And uh, can, can you sort of just give me a, a sense and feel? I did not work personally in the plants, but I did have access to the plants while I was doing my research them, as an okay. interpreter with the unions and as an organizer with the Mississippi Poultry Workers Center. Okay. Sure. Just take, kind of take us through a shift. I, I know you did this really, really well in, in the book. You kind of walked us, you know, sort of entering the plant and walking right through the mm. line. And I, I found it fascinating. Boy, I'll try. You know, the, the pay is low in poultry, but this is really just the beginning. The plants, first of all, they're fortified by walls with um, barbed wire at the top. They very much have a feeling of you know, what's in is supposed to be kept in and what's out is supposed to be out. One of the times that I had the opportunity to tour a plant, uh, a worker was standing by the door that I walked in and he announced to me as I walked in, welcome to the penitentiary. And that was just, you know, hit me that 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 sort of comparison between being inside the walls of a chicken plant and being inside the walls of a, you know, state prison. But they are, you know, they're, they're concrete wall rooms. It's very, very cold. The plant cannot go above 40 degrees in the in the areas where the, the deboning is happening, where the chicken is being mm-hmm. cut. When I was working in with the Mississippi Poultry Workers Center, it was very normal uh, to hear workers saying they weren't permitted to wear jackets to stay warm. Some said that they had to... So they're standing on a line with a conveyor belt of chickens whizzing by them Currently, the limit, the federal limit uh, for line speed is 140 birds per minute. They're Mm -hmm. at the steel table. It's very noisy. You have to sort of shout if you want to communicate with someone, even who's next to you. And the chickens are whirling past you at this tremendous rate. Workers are standing in one place and they're making the same motion up to 60,000 times per shift. So your your job might be to cut off one wing or to lower Mm -hmm. a shoulder, or your job might be to put the whole chicken on the cone that's going to take the chicken down the conveyor belt. Workers also regularly complain that their equipment is dull, that their knives and scissors are dull. This creates conditions ripe for repetitive strain injuries, as as well Mm -hmm. as acute lacerations. We saw lots of amputations come through the worker center. Carpal tunnel and tendinitis are some of the, the major repetitive motion injuries. All right. When, when there's a, a, a laceration, I mean, do they stop the line or do they just keep working through it? I have you know, other accounts that I've read of workplace injuries. Workers have been uh, surprised that, uh, you know, maybe someone has a heart attack and is lying on the ground next to them and the line just keeps running. Um, so when it comes to lacerations, I would suspect that the answer to that question has less to do with the condition of the worker as it does to do with the possible contamination of the food source. Because food safety right. laws, I think, are, are taken very seriously and are um, policed heavily in the chicken plants. Um, labor okay. protections, not so much. Um, again, diapers. I mean, we hear read reports of, of workers who actually wear diapers because there's 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 just no bathroom breaks. Right. So one of the biggest complaints that poultry workers have is the um, that they're not given breaks, particularly when they need to use the bathroom. There's supposed to be a rotation system, a, a floater system, where if you need a break, you know, someone can come replace you on the line while you go to the bathroom. But that clearly isn't happening in a lot of plants or in a lot of cases. And 
again, it was the it was probably the most common complaint that we heard at the worker center from from workers. You know, yes, the line speed is is you know inhumane, and yes, there are lots of injuries, and it's cold, and we're being mistreated, and the supervisors yell at us, but they won't even let us use the bathroom. Right? We heard that over and over to the point mm-hmm. where we actually took the complaint to the director of OSHA. Mississippi doesn't have a state occupational safety and health office, but there was a federal OSHA representative to the state. And and along with some poultry workers and their unions, we took this complaint um, to, to the OSHA office. And they basically said, like, we hear you, but this is a question of resources and we just don't have enough. They said, we've got 12, right. I think it was 12 workers at the time. These This data is a little bit dated, but... At the time, it was 12 um, workers to investigate OSHA issues across the entire state. And they said, you know, mm-hmm. first we're going to go somewhere where um, there's a death on the job. Second, we're going to investigate um, cases where there were multiple injuries. And sort of going down the line, he said, you know, we're just never going to get to the point where we can enforce a worker's right to use the bathroom. So on top of the sort of physicality of the difficult um, nature and the cold nature and the fast nature of, of poultry work, um, the other thing that that I heard so much from workers was the sense that they were treated like they weren't humans, um, that they were treated like they were machines, that they were sort of seen, they felt as if they were disposable. Um, many people reported degradation by supervisors, um, sexual harassment, gender discrimination, extortion in exchange for favorable treatment. And actually, this was um, in the ca- in one case in Mississippi at Cook Foods, one of the plants that, that was raided this past year. Right, um, right. This became a class action lawsuit that was eventually, after many, many years, settled. But that, that I think, is worth mentioning, right? The sort of inhumanity of working in chicken plants. And there, there was one worker leader who who had been there many, many years, who said, you know, the chicken plants just use you up and reach back for your kids. And that it's sort of right. a generational wasting of bodies. Yeah. I, and you refer to to this as plantation capitalism? Yeah. 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 And, and there's a criminalization of actual work, uh, this idea of plantation capitalism um, in, in chicken processing. Yeah. I think I use the term plantation capitalism to think about um, sort of the continuities over time in mm-hmm. the Deep South, where you know our food has always been produced by exploitable laborers, right? By by people who were disenfranchised, who didn't have full rights, and this takes us, you know, takes us back to the time of plantation um, slavery. Mm-hmm. Really, when we when we look at how how food has been produced in our country. Um, and, you know, I think some people hear plantation capitalism and they think, oh, this is sort of some figurative way of talking about racial exploitation in the plants. And, and in some ways it is, but I think it's a much more direct line. I worked with uh, poultry worker leaders who had grown up as sharecroppers on the land that their grandparents had been enslaved on. and. For them, being able to move off that land into a wage-earning job was significant, while at the same time 
sort of the continuities of exploitation and inability to get ahead and sort of the generational expectations that, that you know, your kids were going to be in the same position that you were in. Um, is, right. I think, very real. After the break, what should the Immigrant Bill of Rights look like in America? I love wine, and there is so much of it out there. That's why I love Wine Access. Wine Access has the wine industry's most decorated team, including a master of wine, a master sommelier, and a serious crew of certified psalms and wine journalists. Finding great wine is all about access, and the team has spent decades rubbing shoulders with the legends and under-the-radar winemakers who have defined their very genres. That incredible micro-production Burgundy that only Michelin-starred restaurants can get their hands on? Wine Access probably has it. And they're all about connecting people and place through wine, which I love. And they've got the inside line on everything from Napa icons to rare Sicilian treasures. Better yet, the Wine Access Perfect Providence Guarantee ensures that if anything fails to impress, you get credit. No questions asked. Just head to wineaccess.com forward slash citizen to get $20 off your first $50 or more order. Remember, wineaccess.com slash citizen. I'm Alex Iono, and I have a new podcast. Let's Get Into It is all about tackling the stuff that you and I both want to know more about. How do you turn a friendship into a full-on relationship? What if you're terrified of going broke? You're seeing someone new, but is it love or lust? And how can you actually use humor to heal from grief? Each week, I'll be joined by a friend, a comedian, an actor, an influencer, and a wisdom tree who's an expert in their field to provide a professional opinion. And we discuss everything you want to know about money, love, your relationships, even fitness and mental health. You might know me from my social media platforms, my original music, or even my brand new Netflix film, Finding Ohana. But there is so much more I love to explore with my community. And we're going to cover it all, from first times and how to help friends in low places, the connection between fitness and body positivity, how to define a relationship when you're talking to someone new. You might even learn how to become your own superhero. I love having deep conversations with all of my friends, and now it's time for you to join in. Listen to Alex Iono. Let's get into it on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Launching July 7th. We're back, and you're listening to Citizen Chef. America's immigrant population is under attack. Who is going to plant, pick, and process our food if we don't allow guest workers into our country to do it? I'm going to look at the role that immigrant workers have long played in our food system and ask the question, what should the Immigrant Bill of Rights look like in America? I'm talking to investigative journalist Elisa Zhu of the Mississippi Clarion Ledger. What struck me is, is reading the reports of the raids is the response from the chicken processors. It was almost as if, well, uh, this is all okay. We'll just move on. And 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 um, you know, most businesses, if they lost two thirds of their workforce, would be freaking out. And their reaction was just like, well, okay, we'll find other workers. Um, did this have uh, any additional economic uh, you know, ripple effect through the community? Obviously, the workers were impacted, their families were impacted, but did it have any uh, additional effects? I stopped by some small Hispanic businesses in Morton, um, and they were just totally empty. 
One used to be a combination sort of restaurant and grocery store, but the restaurant had been closed basically since the raids. They didn't have their customers anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, There was one employee who didn't want to talk on the record, but it was clear that they've been really struggling since the raids. And uh, as far as the cost of the raids, the salaries paid to the about 600 federal agents on the day of the raids amounted to nearly Mm $500,000 overall, including the cost of the investigation that extended to 18 months prior. Uh, it's cost taxpayers about $1.3 million so far, and that was according to an ICE official um, back in November. Right. And I guess you're factoring, again, the, the economic effect that it had, uh, the ripple effect that it had through the community, um, plus the fact that I'm, I'm assuming that these people were, were working, they were paying taxes as well. They were paying into Social Security taxes. They weren't getting paid under the table. And so... Y- um, there's a tax base that was eroded as well there. You know, again, plus if you're if you're spending money um, shopping for groceries and things like that, there's also additional tax that's being paid. And I, I guess I'm getting at this myth that, that uh, these workers are getting, most people think that um, workers that are working without proper documentation, that they're not paying into the taxes, they're not, they're, they're, they're kind of getting cash under the table. And it's, it's not the case. The people I talked to were absolutely adamant about the fact that they paid taxes. They may have not been citizens and they may have been using someone else's social security cards, but they were still paying income tax. They were paying sales tax, uh, even property taxes. A lot of the folks I spoke to um, owned homes and and cars. Right. Right. And they're paying into social security that they'll never see. Right. Because the social security is under someone else's name. Right. Right. I still eat chicken, but every time I'm in the meat aisle at the grocery store, I can't help but to think about the raids. I'm reminded of sort of the pungent animal smell that surrounds these chicken plants. I think about the people who left their homes and families and traveled thousands of miles to make a living butchering chickens and uh, who now perhaps don't know where their next meal is coming from. And I look at this chicken that'll become sort of my cheap meal prep for the week, um, but it has been so costly for so many others. Right. Those are, you know, the external costs that we don't actually see when we go to the store and, and spend, you know, for regular commercial chicken, it's about two forty nine a pound or two thirty something a pound. And we don't understand the real, real, the real cost of it. I don't think we actually bear the real cost of it. And it's just a, a system that is propagated, you know, through cheap labor, um, expendable labor. I mean, you know, this uh, story in this raid is just a microcosm of how we look at, at food and how food is produced in this country. And it's just on the backs of expendable labor. Um, again, the cavalier idea of these plants that, well, it, it, I just lost, you know, again, two-thirds of my workforce. And it's no big deal. Somebody else is there to take the job. And someone else that will just kind of burn through until the next wave of immigrants come through, um, are, are um, in, until this kind of dies down, and then they'll go back to doing exactly what they're doing now. Um, it was just—it's it, amazing to me that the owners of these plants bear bore no responsibility at all. I mean, what they were doing was breaking the law. Um, you know, we've we've managed to take uh, work and criminalize work. But yet the, the people who are, who are really reaping the benefit of the cheap labor 
the owners of these plants bore no responsibility at all. And I, I, find, I just find that to, to just be just, you know, snapshot of, of just how our system works. And so when you say you go into the store and you're still buying chicken, but that, that memory is, is, is there, it's, it's seared into your brain and you're always thinking of these people. And I think for, probably for you, it, it's, it's even more visceral because you know the people. You've met the people that, that have been affected by this. It's not um, some abstract thing out there. So to hear you say that, Every time you, you you buy chicken or eat chicken, you think you think of this. I think that is really the takeaway. There are people behind what you're eating. There are stories behind what you're eating, and uh, there's so many lives that are affected. and And our immigration story in this country is one of of you know providing for our food system, whether they're working in processing plants, whether immigrants are working in the fields. Uh, without that labor. We're not eating. And then so the question is, if you're a responsible eater, how are you responsible to that person that is, is doing the work? Is it okay if I bring up a couple sure, more, more of course, points? Of course. Or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, keep, keep going. You know, the people I reached out to were either uh, individuals who are directly impacted by the raids or trying to help those people out. Um, and I think that uh, Mississippi is a very red state. Mm-hmm. There is also a lot of compassion for neighbors that I think is a very um, important value here, um, especially in small towns. The non-immigrant individuals of the community I spoke to, they felt very strongly for the people who ended up getting caught up in the raids. They felt like this raid helped illustrate a need for reform within our immigration system. One woman who said, you know, she doesn't really like to talk about politics, but she just really feels that people who come over here who don't have a criminal background, who are doing their best to work hard and and make a life for their families, they should be given some sort of avenue for citizenship or or for work authorization. Um, and one pastor I talked to, um, he is a priest at a local Catholic church, um, and he acknowledged that a large part of his congregation is pretty conservative. And so when the raids happened, uh, he decided, I'm not going to put this sort of in a political framework. I'm just going to say this is a humanitarian crisis. The people who are suffering, they are are parishioners, they are our neighbors, and we need to help them. This is our Katrina. We need to step up. I'll leave it at that and just want to say thank you for the work that you're doing. And This is this has been eye-opening. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Our government is making it impossible for workers to actually work here, immigrant workers, and, and, and doing their best to separate them from their families and locking them up in cages. And so there's a real shortage pre-COVID of workers who are forming an essential duty of making sure that we're fed. And so now with COVID, what we're seeing is that conditions in a lot of these processing plants um, are not safe. And, and all in the quest for providing cheap, cheap food. But that cheap food is 
you know, produced on the backs of people who are marginalized and really have no power. And in fact, we have a government that is often colluding against them to keep them marginalized. But this is nothing new. I want to thank our guests, Angela Stisi and Elisa Zhu and Kristen Castry and Lori Silverbush at A Place at the Table. This is Citizen Chef with me, Tom Colicchio. Our executive producer is Christopher Hasiotis. Our researcher is Jesslyn Shields. And our producer and editor is Gabrielle Collins. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Devin Leary. And I'm Carolina Barlow. And we're here to tell you to dump him. Break up with your boyfriend. And we want you to listen to our podcast, True Romance, every week, where we talk about our love lives and the love lives of others. Please join our exes, who we know will also be listening. Like Kyle. Kyle, are you there? Hey, babe, how's life? No, you look good, though. Me? Oh, my God, stop. Please, I haven't even gotten a haircut in like three months. Okay, please help us pay for Carolina's psychiatrist bills by listening on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I want true.